Hello, welcome to the Inquire Mind podcast with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Amelia Pang. Amelia Pang is an award-winning investigative journalist of Uyghur and Chinese descent. Her work has been published in the New Republic, Mother Jones, the New York Times Sunday Review, among other publications. She's currently an editor at EdTech Magazine. Her most recent book, which I highly recommend, is called Made in China, A Prisoner and SOS Letter and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods, which was published on February 2nd, 2021 by Algonquin Books. On this podcast, we discuss the story of a prisoner in a Chinese work camp, the weakness of American leadership against China, the dangers of Xi Jinping, Uyghur ethnic cleansing in China, and other very interesting topics. As always, if you're interested in what you hear, please consider subscribing on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. So now, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Amelia Peng. Amelia Peng, welcome to the Inquiring Mind podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure. Um, I read your book right here, Made in China, uh, in two days. It was it was that good. It was really well written, uh, quite harrowing, uh, because you would read the book. You say it can't get worse, and it, and it always does, um, but um before we get into the details of your book because i have i have so many questions to ask uh can you tell the audience why you decided to sit down and write this book and why this issue in particular was so important sure um for those who don't know my book is called made in china a prisoner and sos letter um and the hidden cost of america's cheap goods and it follows it's a nonfiction book. It follows the true story of um, an American woman in Oregon. She's just this normal suburban mom of two, and she was planning to plant, uh, decorate a Halloween party for one of her children. And she's just looking through kind of all of the Halloween decorations she's collected over the years. And she comes across this one box that was has never been opened. One of those things that was only purchased because it was um, an insanely cheap bargain deal at, at Kmart actually. Um, and when she opened it, she was shocked to find an SOS letter written by the forced labor in China who had made and manufactured, who had made and packaged this very product. Um, so the book tells his story, how he landed in a labor camp in Liaoning, China, um, and how the products they were making there ended up selling at a Kmart in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, it's really unfortunate that this is not the first or the last letter of this kind to have been discovered by an American or overseas consumer. Um, it's one of several, um, but rarely do, you know, whenever these letters get found and publicized, there are usually some news reports about it. It's really sensational. It gets a lot of headlines. 
Um, but there's rarely ever a deeper look at how it got there, you know, the entire system and, you know, our contribution to it as global consumers, especially American consumers. Yeah. And is the concern to you that this, these kind of camps and um, labor conditions exist or how prevalent they are, or is it both that's, that's concerning to you? Yeah, um, it's it, it's quite prevalent, even more prevalent now than um, when I first started working on this book. Uh, now you're seeing with the rise of the Uyghur re-education camps, so-called re-education camps um, in the Uyghur region of Northwestern China. Um, you know, the, the, the scale, it's impossible to ignore at this point in terms of how much of the products that we buy every day are either manufactured or partially assembled in one of these facilities um, that are really quite gruesome. You know, these facilities are historically based off of and inspired by Soviet gulags. So a lot of times the intention behind them is to torture dissidents, is to really convert political descendants, uh, sorry, political dissidents and religious dissidents um, into staying in line, staying in party line and not really um, doing anything that would defy the Chinese government. And, you know, they're really, really gruesome, disturbing places where people have to work 15 to 20 hours a day. Um, they often don't have enough food. They don't have proper equipment uh, to help them do the, to protect them and they don't have any kind of protective gear to help them do that manufacturing work and often get injured during the job and um, lack access to medical care. And these are really dangerous facilities. And it, it, I think it's really troubling for, for any human being when, when we realize that something that we own might have been par- at least partially manufactured in a place like this. Yeah, while reading the book, I, I read a book recently about a, a Holocaust survivor's account. And way too, uh, all too often, we compare certain things to concentration camps. But when I was reading uh, your book, I'm, I'm part of my pronunciation, um, Masangia, right? That's one of the, Masangia is one of the probably the most horrible labor camps in, in, uh, in China, uh, at least one of the worst you've re- you wrote about in your book. And the similarities between that and 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 the concentration camps created by the Nazis were all too uh, common. Uh, for example, there's some in Masangia, there are people called Sifang, and they reminded me they're prisoners that are sort of guards for other prisoners, and they reminded me of capos in concentration camps. Uh, the cells with metal bunks uh, that people are packed into reminded me of cells with wooden bunks in, in a place like Auschwitz, for example. Um, the showers that people were allowed to take uh, that only ran cold water, that was also a tactic used by the Nazis where it was a way of kind of making fun of the prisoners, even though for them, a shower was a shower and they would take the cold water over nothing. Um, is this a fair assessment in your, in your opinion? to compare it to a concentration camp? 
I mean, it, it's very, it's extremely gruesome and disturbing conditions and a very large number of people die in these facilities. But um, I, I know that there's a lot of um, maybe Holocaust survivors and um, Jewish associations who might who, who would be reluctant to make a direct comparison because you know there's there's nothing really that can quite compare to the Holocaust and it's it's its own unique um, there's so many unique um, historical and cultural considerations and it, it is hard to compare one genocide against with another um, but but I do see what you're saying and, and I appreciate you um, you know bringing that up uh, but. Well, what I can say is that it's really, especially now, it's it's gotten even worse. It, they're really China is really targeting, um, particular particularly targeting one ethnic and religious group, um, which is the Uyghur Muslims, and the scale of the arrests and the detainment. It's um, there's millions millions of Uyghurs um, detained in these facilities and. It's very hard for any researcher or journalist to go in and um, report about it without getting followed and tracked, and um, and it's very very hard for anyone to to leave China um, who's of Uyghur who who's of Uyghur descent um, after 2019 or so in recent years. Um, so so. Um, I, 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 I do appreciate you bringing that up and I hope people, more people would be, um, pay more attention to what's currently happening uh, to this particular ethnic group. Can you uh, elaborate on, to the people that don't know, what is going on to the Uyghurs in, in China at the moment? Right, uh, the Uyghurs are a Turkic ethnic group in, China, in Northwestern China. Um, they're, they're Central Asians, really. They they have darker skin. Um, they they don't really look uh, Chinese. What you would think of as Chinese is Han Chinese, um, and you know that 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 region borders many countries, such as Pakistan. There's a lot of Middle Eastern countries that border um, uh, the Xinjiang region, which is what China calls them, and what the Uyghurs don't say that they're part of East Turkestan. They don't recognize um, China's colonization of, of the area. Um, but, but that region is an extremely, extremely lucrative um, and important investment for the Chinese government. And that's closely tied to why there's been such a intense crackdown against the Uyghurs in recent years. Um, you know, it, the Xinjiang region is a key part of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a trillion dollar economic development strategy um, that, um, especially that particular route, it connects China to the Middle East, it connects China to West Asia and Europe. Um, and there's a lot of infrastructure investments, a lot of 5G networks. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a major, major, um, very expensive transportation hub of huge logistical importance to to China. It's almost too big to fail. So um, they previously there has been some very very small scale protests erupting in that region due to the the Uyghurs um, um, over the decades living quite um, uh, impoverished lives and um, not really getting a lot of 
um, fair fair treatment and workers' rights in China. Um, but those those uprisings were really quite small, and I, I think the fear is that there might be some there large scale uprisings in that region that could potentially um, interfere with their financial investments in the region. So so that's why. That's really what a lot of academics believe is, is why there's such a large scale crackdown on the Uyghurs have happened in recent years. Mm. And this made the news uh, in the United States around the world that this was happening and, and it seemed to catch people's attention for a little while and then it kind of died down. Although, um, from what I know, the, the treatment of the Uyghurs has not stopped. It's probably only escalated in the months since the coverage kind of died down. Um, is there is there something the U.S. government can do? I mean, obviously there there is, but um, why has the U.S. government been so reluctant to act against uh, China in any way? I think a lot of it has to do with corporate lobbying, um, especially for the Uyghur region, because that region produces 20% of the world's cotton and it's an extremely um, lucrative trade region. You know, there's a lot of tomato products. There's a, there's a lot of different products that are grown and manufactured in that region. And if we were to ban all products from that region from um, being exported to the US, um, which is actually legislation that's being considered at the moment. It's called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act uh, due to the just extremely high risk of anything coming from that region being manufactured in a forced labor facility. Um, but there's also, you know, that, re- that passed in the Senate recently. Um, it still needs to get passed in the House. Um, in order for it to become law, but uh, it's really unclear whether it can get passed because there's a lot of money um, spent, a lot of American corporate lobbying efforts uh, uh, that are trying to water down this legislation or not get it passed um, because it would be very expensive for, for the, in the short run, at least very expensive for American companies to lose this part of their supply chain. So, you know, that's one aspect of why there's a reluctance in Washington to take serious action. Yeah. And, and when I was reading the book that also came to mind, is it, is it really that difficult? Maybe I'm oversimplifying it, obviously, but um, is it that difficult to find another place to produce cheaper products? Uh, why is it why does it have to be China? Yeah, that's that's actually the thing. China isn't even the cheapest anymore. They just they're just one of the most efficient. There's a factory. There's factories. There's multiple factories for every kind of stuff, every kind of niche little part that you need. Um, whereas, if you're really going to, like for example, like microchips or something like that, if you want to have enough microchips, that's just one example. Um, that I'm using more anecdotally, and I'm, I'm not talking specifically of microchips, but you know, if there's one little part that's key to your product that you need to produce a lot of, um, and there's most of the factories for it is in China, um, then 
you're kind of put in a tough situation. I mean, other countries, country, other countries might be cheaper, like a lot of um, India and South South Asian countries and some African countries are really developing. Um, they're going through their industrial revolution now and just having a lot of factories that are even cheaper than China and that are growing kind of rapidly. But those countries are a lot of times smaller. There's not as many factories and it'll take them a little while to um, really build the facilities and, or retool the facilities to, to, to make that particular part that you need. So a lot of companies are still depending on China um, even though it's not necessarily the cheapest one anymore due to the trade war and just um, other countries that are also jumping into the manufacturing bulb. Um, but it, it is really hard to, I think, turn away because what's the alternative? Um, you know, there's all this talk about trying to bring manufacturing back to the US, but it's going to take a lot of investment to probably from the federal level to retool um, these older factories to make products that we need today, um, especially high tech products. Um, China is actually China is not even that really not cheap anymore. They're really positioning themselves to be um, a leader in manufacturing high-tech goods for the future. Um, it's That's really part of their long-term plan. And there unfortunately isn't really a whole lot of um, countries who are doing anything similar. So as much as I, I would like to see um, companies move out of China or, or at least facilities that are you know widely known to be associated with these forced labor camps. Um, I, I don't know if they really realistically can because it's there's a lot of industries that still only exist in China in terms of the, 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 the parts that they're manufacturing. Yeah, but do you think consumers in the United States and, and European countries would, would be willing to take short-term uh, price gains over you know, long run uh, exploitation of slave labor, essentially. Um, That's the interesting part. I think maybe historically, no, but um, now we're seeing with the rise of purchasing power from the younger generations like Gen Z, who do care about social activism in a way that, um, it's more they they do they care about it more powerfully than than previous generations, including even millennials. You know they're really willing to put their dollar where their mouths are, and they will be. They are more willing to stop purchasing from a company if they think that company doesn't align with their their values. Um, and this could be potentially a huge driver of change down the line. Yeah. Um... One, one interesting fact in, in your book was that the newest generation doesn't have as much attachment to brands when, uh, I guess I'm technically part of that generation, but I, I thought it was the opposite because it always seemed to me that my, my generation were obsessed with brands, uh, but you, you say, no, not really. You, uh, our generation has no problem dropping them if they don't align with our values or or whatever it might be. Um, 
what, yeah, what, what I mean, they're still buying a lot of, you know, cheap stuff and, you know, but, but the, unlike millennials, I think there's more of a, a willingness. Uh, there's something cool about buying from thrift stores and not necessarily getting something that's not necessarily getting everything that's a brand, or they might be willing to spend a lot of money on one expensive luxury item and like really cherish it for years down the line. You know, mm -hmm. they, they're just characteristics that um, could probably lead to maybe less consumption down the line. You know, if there was more awareness that these products could be tied to a forced labor facility. Yeah. Um, it, what I like in the beginning of your book, you, you outlined that this is not just a story of human rights violations. Uh, it's, as you put it, quote, unfettered globalization and overconsumption. Um, when did you first come to the realization that globalization and overconsumption was, was the main, was probably the main contributing factor to this, to this issue? When I was researching the auditing and manufacturing process in terms of the whole supply chain, how does a product that's manufactured in this horrific facility end up selling in stores all over the world? Um, and it's due to demand. Um, it's not necessarily Chinese factory owners that are just, you know, not caring about human rights and bad people, you know, I think that's really too simplistic and inaccurate of a narrative. What often happens is the there's a overseas international company that um, will get a contract with a Chinese supplier and that supplier, you know, it's a really big deal for them to get this contract with a major global brand it's not easy for them. Um, there's a lot of factories in China, a lot of competitors, and they're willing, kind of willing to do anything to make this big global brand happy and have them continue buying from them. Um, but sometimes, or oftentimes, the big global brand might change the deadline last minute um, because they want the product faster, because they're trying to make the most money uh, they can out of a particular trend that's really selling well at the moment. Um, and if that particular factory can't meet that deadline with um, in-house um, employees or, you know, legitimate subcontractors, they're going to have to outsource the work. A lot of times they end up, that's the reason why they end up outsourcing work to some really shady facilities, whether it's forced labor facilities or other factories with very poor working conditions. Um, so it's, it's, it's the consumer demand for the trendiest products, the latest products um, that ends up being one of the large factors that drive Chinese suppliers to make that decision to outsource work to a forced labor camp. And, you know, it's not necessarily that they want to do that, but they, you know, they, they don't really want to do anything that might upset this global brand um, and potentially lose their relationship with them, um, but they kind of have to, to get the job done. That's that their, the brand, our brands are asking them to do. Um, and the other major factor is just the, the cheapness of, of the price. You know, when you're, when we as consumers are always chasing the, the latest trends for the cheapest prices, um, how is that actually getting manufactured? 
um, you know, if, if the if the brand isn't paying enough money to the supplier to make the product, and they they don't actually have enough money to pay their normal workers in a normal facility to make them, then they kind of have to outsource work to a prison camp where people are not really paid, um, and it's it's just a cheaper a cheaper way to subcontract essentially, and. So, so, so a lot of this does come back to how we buy and the kind of things that we buy and how often we buy and just how the things we buy a lot of times are really frivolous and cheap um, and trendy. And, um, and so I do think that we can impact change down the line by changing our shopping habits in a way. So I know we talk about a lot of pressing things in the book, but you know, there, I, I do want to mention that this is ultimately a book about hope, about how we can impact these changes down the line through a simple change in the way that we shop. When researching the book and then, you know, writing it, did you have any personal changes to your buying habits or did you start noticing certain things that you didn't before? Yeah, um, when I... Like, I don't know if there is any brand that definitely isn't associated with any kind of forced labor in the supply chain. I think that's really hard to say. Um, but what I try to do is just to buy less or to when I buy something, I really try to enter like a relationship, a commitment to this particular product. Like, I only buy things that I feel like I'm really going to use or wear for years down the line. I'm not just going to throw away because it's suddenly not trendy anymore to have this particular design. Um, I try to avoid things that are, you know, super, super trendy or super, super, um, you know, things that are just fads, like things that are, for example, certain colors or maybe the, I know I see a lot of young people wearing tie dye right now and it's really trendy and, um, but is that still going to be trendy next summer or two years from now? Probably not. You might feel a little ridiculous wearing tie-dye then, and you're going to probably want to throw away all your tie-dye clothes um, a year or two from now. So, you know, I try not to buy stuff like that that I know I may not feel comfortable wearing <laughs> for the long term. And I think that does help down the line. You know, it's just less, it's just putting less pressure on these factories to outsource work to labor camps essentially yeah and in the midst of your uh, uh at times very depressing book you throw in uh, marie kondo into the mix and i think marie kondo has the, the best way of uh handling things that you care about or you don't care about it's um i forgot what she says but if oh if it sparks joy right like if something yeah. if an object sparks joy then keep it if it doesn't you know get rid of it i think people have a lot of unnecessary anxiety when it comes to maybe picking out their clothes in the morning or uh, looking at their closets and going, Oh my God, I have too many things, but they keep buying things because, you know, you see things in the, in, in the, in the store window and you go, Oh, I want that. But uh, that might actually be uh, a bad idea in the long run. Um, so one of the uh, most depressing stories you tell and, and he's central to your book is the story of son 
uh, right son correct mm-hmm. yeah uh, he he went through probably all sorts of hell um, to get out and get have his story heard can you please tell the audience that obviously hasn't read the book and I know you devote a lot of pages to the book so people should buy the book and read it uh, can you tell maybe a brief overview of who who is son and how did you first hear about him and why is he so central to your book? Yeah, Soon was the author of the SOS letter that eventually got discovered in Portland, Oregon in a product in Kmart. Um, he was this engineer and he got involved with the band spiritual group called Falun Gong um, that, and took on a lot of pro-democracy activism in his later years that eventually landed him in a labor camp. and. Um, you know, I just wanted to tell somebody's story and I thought his story was a good one to tell because of the fact that he was a political dissident. Um, he wasn't, you know, any kind of violent criminal who landed in the camp. You know, he was somebody who was really trying to work for a freer China, um, and, and I, I think it's, it was just really chilling to focus on that particular camp at the time. And when I was first starting my research, uh, particularly, I thought it would be good to focus on that camp because they were manufacturing decorative gravestones for Halloween. And it's, it's a chilling allegory because this is a, a, a labor camp where, you know, people die and they get buried in unmarked graves. And here they are making fake gravestones to sell as decoration in America. And um, I thought that that was just a powerful anecdote for for telling this story of globalization, how we're contributing to the success and rise of these camps in a way. And what happened to Sun after he got out eventually? Uh, What happened to Sun? Yeah, against all odds, he got out. Um, It's a very, (laughs) very, Gripping long story, story. Long, yeah. Long gripping story, how he got out. But, um, and I think in the end, he just wanted his story heard. He wanted the people who bought these products to know how it was made. And that's yeah. what I tried to tell in the book and what I hope people will take from it. What, what's, what's truly most depressing about his story is the fact that he, in a lot of ways, sacrificed his life to this cause because as you mentioned he was an engineer he came from a very poor family his family uh his mom uh, mom and dad are some incredible people they they devoted pretty much all their resources to him for him to be able to go to school he was a very bright guy um could have probably moved to the united states eventually if he wanted to learn english you know did it did everything by the book and then um, in a, in a, in pursuit of some kind of spiritual uh, spiritual goal for himself, he joins this uh, Falun Gong, right? That this this religion. I think he heard his grandmother talk about it when he was young, and that sends his life down a down a a, a, a very insane path. I I. I 
I'm hard pressed to find a story I've I've read that kept me more on edge, and because I really did not know if he was going to survive or not. Um, most people wouldn't. Most people would either, you know, probably commit suicide or, or something like that because it's it's just unfathomable that something like this happens in a country that we 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 have decent trade relations with and uh, people buy their products on a day to day basis from. So that that was what's most concerning to me because when you put a face to the product that you buy in a store and you don't treat it as a deal anymore you treat it as that's 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 the price of your fake tombstone for your halloween party um and that to me was eye opening and i think uh it would be to a lot of people if you know they they've read your book um, but to, to, to a different point, uh, the Soviet Union after after Stalin Stalin's, Stalin died, uh, Khrushchev, who was the next in command, uh, undid a lot of the gulags in the Soviet Union, and they still had I think they still had a few camps here and there, but not as many as they had during the peak of Stalin's time. Why did China not follow? the Soviet Union in disbanding their labor camps after Mao's death? It's a great question. Um, Unlike the Soviet Union, the Chinese government saw the the lucrative potential of these camps. You know, they were not real, they were not only a good way to silence the dissent, a convenient way to silence dissent, um, but uh, they they were extremely important for growing the Chinese economy. it's just kind of this open secret um, that pretty much any legitimate supplier in China can outsource work to a prison camp. Um, I I went to China and I followed the the trucks that left some of these camps to see exactly which um, su- which suppliers they were working with and who they were exporting to, and. You know, they were working with all kinds of major global official factories, um, including a supplier that was listed on Apple's official supply chain list. And, you know, the problem is that auditors, a company like Apple wouldn't know about it or they wouldn't be willing to admit that one of their factories may be associated with the labor camp because they say they do audits. And they confirm with their audits that that, that factory is um, very has great work conditions for their workers, and mm-hmm. maybe it does, but the audits don't check for these kinds of secret subcontracting that happens. So it's just kind of this open secret that you know has been accepted by major global brands, and nobody is really asking questions. So I, and that's why it's really exploded the way that it has over the last few decades. And um, I, I think since the brands themselves are not willing to do more to cut forced labor out of the supply chain, um, it really takes legislative action and consumer activism to, I think, really mm-hmm. move the needle. So I, I appreciate you, you know, sharing this book and sharing this with you, with your listeners. Yeah, for sure. Um during your China trip, did you feel like you were at 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 risk that people were going to follow you or 
anything like that? Um, I actually got lucky and no one followed me because I didn't go on a journalism visa. I was on a tourism visa. So, um, and I stuck to the big cities, which had, you know, it didn't look so strange for someone with a foreign passport to show up in a big city that's known for to have a lot of tourism sites and, you know, things like that. So I actually didn't get followed. Um, and I was lucky to get some really great insights during my research, uh, just going to these camps and talking to the guards and just how, you know, it was just shocking how, how willing and how easily they shared um, what they sold inside. If you said that you were with, um, you know, if you were somebody from a factory or a brand that wanted to buy from them, it just sounded like something that they often discussed with buyers and they felt very comfortable with discussing with buyers. So. You know, if anybody, I, I think if I as an individual journalist with limited resource was able to bridge that connection um, between a forced labor facility and some major global brands, um, these brands with millions of dollars to spend on audits can definitely find out more than what I was able to if they wanted to look, but nobody is really requiring them to look. Like no laws really require them to do more to ensure that their factories are not secretly subcontracting to some really disturbing places. Um, and consumers aren't really asking them to release their audit reports or do better audits. And so, you know, until there is more of those two elements entered into this, the game, um, I, I don't think it, I think brands will just continue ignoring the problem and China will continue growing these, these camps. Yeah, I think this book also highlighted the the weakness of American leadership and for both Republican and Democrat, because uh, the first person you talk about was George H.W. Bush uh, putting in some kind of uh, restrictions on trade with China. But it wasn't really a restriction on trade because you can get around it pretty easily. Same thing with Bill Clinton after him. Um, Did you. Do you think it's gotten. Uh, do you think there's a president or uh, do you have hope that Joe Biden, for example, ha- would have success in dealing with China or or no? I don't know, <laughs> but I, I do think the one legislation that could be potentially really impactful is the Uyghur Labor Trans. I mean, sorry, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which would ban all products from the Xinjiang region, which is where a lot of the Uyghur camps are. And that's that would be powerful if it can get passed in the in the house, because it would really hurt China's economic investments in a key part of their Belt and Road Initiative. And if anything, I think that's the thing that could push China to ease up on the camps and release the Uyghurs, at least. Yeah. Uh, one of the greatest scams that you write about in your book is the the audits, as you mentioned. Um, there, are, I forget two or three different kinds of audits that you can do. There's the you know the hundred dollar one that's kind of just like a throwaway audit, uh, just to show that you did something. Uh, and then there are the more in depth ones that are more expensive. But what you mention is that the sheer amount that you would have to run, even a big corporation would find it pretty expensive at the end of the day to run these audits consistently. Um, What's surprising to me is that we don't have a government agency in the United States that can audit 
the audits, you know, like, I guess the auditing of the audit department. I don't know. But um, do you know why that is? Do, uh, again, I, I just want to highlight um, the fact that you, there's a book, there are probably numerous books out there, uh, your book that account that, that, that show all of these horrible acts in these labor camps means that the, the U.S. government must know that this is going on. Oh, it's for either, sure they know. Um, there's been congressional hearings about these camps. The, right. the government definitely knows. So in some way, it's willful, willful ignorance. In some, uh, that's what it seems to me, at least. Like, it's it just, you know, you know that the audits are the one way that companies use to get around it, yet you don't even bother to audit the audits. Like, it, it doesn't seem to make sense to me, at least. Yeah, I know that U.S. government does have very limited resources. Um, I guess the one thing you can compare it to is the FDA and how they audit whether something is actually organic or not, or if it's if it's um, been imported from overseas. Um, and and there, even though they do have people occasionally auditing the auditors who audit that, <laughs> um, um, a lot they, it's a it's a really problematic way to do it. They're very limited in resources, and there's actually a lot of um, fake organic products um, entering the U.S. that um, are actually do have GMO or made with GMO, and and um there's it's not really worth paying a higher price for it's very sad um but but it's 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 that's been well documented so i don't know if having necessarily um someone in the u.s government to inspect the audits more closely could solve the issue um or that alone i don't think can solve mm-hmm. the issue sure it can help um but no it, it is a huge problem that the audits are, are quite ineffective um and i think that's because nobody really asks questions about them. No, consumers don't ask questions about the audits. Um, and so, so let's back up and maybe explain how these audits began in the first place. A lot of them really started in the 90s um, when Nike was getting a lot of pushback for having sweatshops. And there was a lot of protests in campuses um, all over the world. And um, they thought they needed to do something to show that they were you know, trying to make sure their factories had good working conditions. And so that's how audits really, these large scale audits really began. And, you know, these days audits, uh, the couple hundred dollar ones that you mentioned, a lot of times they only look for something very simple and surface level, like the quality of the product, the cleanliness of the facility, um, how well the equipment is working. Um, It can't really detect anything as complex or hidden as secret subcontracting to an unauthorized supplier like a labor camp. Um, then there's you know more expensive audits that could cost you know two thousand dollars or something like that and you know uh, that look for more things and then there's even more expensive ones that you know do, uh, take three days to do and they they um, or three to five days to do I think and, and they look they're very comprehensive. They look at all the wage documents and uh, and compare it across multiple departments for that factory to try to get a good understanding of where they're subcontracting to and could they possibly be subcontracting to the places that they say they are um, based on the prices that they're paying. You know, they they so those audits could potentially detect 
um, bad subcontracting. Um, but there, it's really unclear how many companies do that type of audit for most of their suppliers. Um, or even if there are companies that, that do, do or don't do that, it's not really revealed on anybody's corporate social responsibility website. Um, it's even the really, really, um, even these newer companies that have branded themselves around transparency and sustainability, like a company like Everlane, you know, they, they might share some, a few details about their audits, but they don't really explain what kind of an audit did they do? Um, what did they actually look for in their audit? And what were the results? What were the follow-up actions that they took? Um, you know, there, there's just no information about that on anybody's website or reports that are publicly published. Um, so it, there's that's, that's the problem with our audits. I've, I've spoken with Chinese auditors who audit these Chinese factories and for Western companies, and they say, you know, based on the way we do audits, there's no way to verify if something was made in a prison camp or not. We just don't look for that kind of stuff. But I know it happens because it's very common in the industry for that to happen. Um, and yeah, I've even talked to Chinese factories, the factory managers would say, yeah, it's it happens all the time. People subcontract to prison camps and um, why are you even writing about this? This is not a secret. Like that someone literally said that to me. <laughs> Um, it, it's so common that people don't even see it as a secret. So, um, no, it's it's a huge problem that leads to, that I can't I think can be resolved with stricter audits and and more awareness of of what audits actually look for. Yeah, one of the um, concerns I also had while reading the booklets, uh, you tell a story that. Um, son's sister went to visit him at, at Masanjia. I'm, I'm really trying to pronounce it uh, correctly. Um, at Masanjia. And, you know, they wouldn't allow her to go see him for some time, for a few years, I think. And it, as it turned out, but uh, I think the first time she goes with her grandmother, um, they go to visit or mother, sorry, with the mother, uh, they go to visit. And they take like this little trolley or, you know, kind of a guy on a bike. That's how I picture it in my mind um, to the prison from from the train station or from the hotel, wherever it was. And there's a sign on the back that said, uh, like, essentially supporting the 2008 Olympics. And he said that his business has has catapulted since um, the Olympics has started. Because to support the, you know, the, the, the Olympic cause or whatever, they had to imprison more people. So he would have to give more uh, rides to people. And now he does up to three or four a day instead of, you know, maybe one or none on some days before. Um, before the 2008 Olympics, the China promised to improve its human rights conditions, but it only got worse. So we have another situation where in 2022, the Olympics will be held in Beijing again, I think. Um, what do we do this time? Do we boycott it? Do we not boycott it? Um, I, I think we should because I, I don't think there's any indication that Beijing has changed its ways. In fact, it's only gotten worse since the 2008 Olympics um, where it's been well documented that um, you know, 
there were some dissidents who protested um, in Beijing uh, to try to bring international attention to their cause causes and um, they were immediately arrested. Um, there were many people who lost their homes as they were building facilities and never got um, any kind of payment or any kind of new housing or any kind of support for, for losing their homes. Um, there, were, there were all kinds of human rights issues that happened as a result of the Olympics and really large scale arrests of dissidents because China wanted to paint a very, very clean and manufactured picture to the foreign journalists and coming into the international eyes that we're watching. And so whenever China has an Olympics, there has an Olympic, there, there, there's, there's wide arrests of innocent people. And that, that's into places like labor camps. It's not just a detention center or um, a jail for a few nights. You know, the, these are really, really gruesome camps where people can get lost in and lose their lives in. And that's the impact um, of the Olympics that I don't think is widely known or reported on. Yeah. Um, you talked about the, the hope that some people had when Xi, uh, Xi Jinping became um, president of China. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, that he, some hope that he would usher in some kind of more democratic reforms or, you know, changes that they wanted uh, that did not really transpire. It only seemed to get worse. Um, who, I mean, a lot of Americans, we, we see Xi Jinping on TV, but who is, who is he? Where did he come from? And um, why is he more maybe dangerous than, than leaders before in China? Well, he, he's dangerous in a way because he has a cult-like following that really China hasn't seen since the days of Mao. And he has changed the laws in China and made himself leader for life. So um, that you haven't seen until the, that is um, something you haven't really seen in China for a very long time. Um, you know, before, even if it was, um, kind of just ceremonial, that there would be changes in leadership and slight changes in direction, that there wasn't really one person with just that much power. Um, but she, Xi Jinping has that now, and um, and he's used that power to um, really, in some really disturbing ways, um, a few minutes. Oh, can I, I'll wrap up. I'll wrap up. Yeah. Um, so the last two questions I ask of all my guests are uh, one is what gives you hope? And the other one is what are five books on any topic that you would recommend to people? Um, what gives me hope is actually your generation, Gen Z. You guys are willing to do activism for all kinds of social causes. And, um, and uh, you know, I hope you can take on the, the forced labor cause as well. And because you guys really do impact change. Um, for the future. Um, and in terms of books that I really love, I'm, I'm reading Land of Big Numbers right now by uh, Tipping Chen. And it is, she, she's, she's, she's written, she's published, I think a part of the one chapter of the book is a short story in the New Yorker and it's terrific. And um, if anybody's interested in China or just looking for some beautiful writing, I, 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 I love it immensely and I highly recommend it. Um, 
other maybe four books. Do they have to be new books or just any book? Uh, any books that you would recommend to people? Um, one of my favorite books of all time is Random Family. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's the, the journalist follows a group of people in the Bronx for 10 years. And it's just incredibly told. It reads, it, it's just the, the best of the best for literary nonfiction. Um, it, I, I read it so many years ago, but to this day, I still think about the people she wrote about and I wonder how they're doing or what happened to them. You know, it's, it's, it's my absolute favorite book ever. Um, highly recommend that. Uh, so what other, um, you know, since my book is so depressing and I was immersed <laughs> in something so depressing for a long time, I'm trying to read lighter things at the moment. I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've started reading Kevin Kwan's, um, you know, rich, crazy, rich Asian series. <laughs> it's quite funny. It's quite funny if anybody just wants a laugh <laughs> about, about something ridiculous and also kind of poignant. Um, it's awesome. Uh, other books, let me think. Um, I do, I do really like The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Um, it's incredibly beautiful. and. It was one of those books I couldn't put down. Um, uh, yeah, that's it. I guess. Awesome. Uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Um, Made in China, highly recommend it. Thank you again. Thank you, thank you so much. Take care. You too.